Well, welcome to Ethics Today. This is a program that interviews interesting people about some of the kind of complex issues and topics going on in our world today. And our guest this evening is Tom Thibodeau, who's a distinguished professor of servant leadership at Viterbo University. Uh, Tom and I have been teaching in the servant leadership program since it started 20 years ago. Um, and it also happens to be the 50th anniversary this year of the publication of the essay, The Servant as Leader by Robert K. Greenleaf. And so I thought this would be a good time to talk about the history of servant leadership. So thank you, Tom, for, for being here and for having this discussion tonight. Well, thank you, Rick. It's always good to be in conversation with you. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about how you learned about servant leadership, because uh, when I came to Viterbo 20 years ago, one of the first things you did was invite me to a meeting to discuss starting a master's program, uh, but I had never heard of servant leadership. I'd never read anything about Robert Greenleaf, and you were really the only one on campus familiar with it. And so just uh, talk a little bit about how you came across Greenleaf and why it appealed to you. Um, in, in 1975, I'm in uh, British Columbia, Canada, and I went to, I chose a master's program at Seattle University because it was the closest university to where I was, 600 miles away. I drove to Seattle University and I'm in a program uh, for our master's degree in uh, religious education. Uh, that's the area I was working in as, as a missionary in Canada. And uh, while I'm there, I'm one of the only lay people and I'm certainly younger than anybody else in the program by at least uh, 10 to 15 years. And um, kind of trying to find out where's my place in all this. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a religious, um, I'm not ordained. Um, faith is important to me. And I picked up the book, The Servant as Leader. It had just, just come out, published by Paulus Press. And I read it. And I decided right then and there, this is how I want to live the rest of my life. And the ideas never left, left me. And I'd always try to find people to talk to about it. But it was difficult because you always had to explain what you wanted to talk about. But I, I was coming to the indication that well, my faith has to permeate everything I do. It has to permeate my work. It has to permeate my relationships. It has to permeate my, my leisure. And certainly has to be connected to a, a call to serve justly, uh, love tenderly, and walk humbly with your God. And so that's, that's how I decided that at age 25, when I'm searching and kind of fit right in with what Greenleaf had to say about being a seeker, maybe that was the language that I was uh, identifying with, and I, I began thinking about it. Well, then I was opportunity, came back to uh, La Crosse, worked in residential treatment, became a director of child care. And then from there, went up to the University of Wisconsin at, at La Crosse. And I began teaching graduate courses with my friend, Fred Cush. And I really enjoyed teaching uh, graduate courses in education. We were doing that for George Williams College. And then a positional, of, a part-time position opened up a terrible and sister Rita Dobkins asked me to come. Then I applied for a, a, a jo the job and it was to be a director of their new ministry program. Well, it was geared towards lay people serving in the church. And I, I really kind of believed in that and the call of Vatican II for all the baptized to serve. But then as I read the documents of Vatican II, I realized that the major call of Vatican II was not just to call people to serve in the church, but in the world. God so loved the world that he sent the son. God so loved the world that he's sending us to do the work of teaching and healing. So that was, uh, that's what I, what I chose to do at a very early age and I've never turned back. And I remember talking to you uh, early on, you, you told the story when we started the servant leadership program at Viterbo, you were, you were the one who was insistent on calling it that, even though a lot of people hadn't, have never heard of the, the phrase. Um, right. Why? Just remind everybody. Why Bill was that? Bill in the nineteen. Well, Bill Medlin came to me and asked me if I wanted to start a master's degree in pastoral ministry. He had come from St. Mary's and they had a master's in pastoral ministry. And I said, no, I said, the world has enough masters in pastoral ministry. Uh, St. Thomas, St. John, St. Scholastica's, Marquette, Edgewood, all these Catholic colleges that started these masters in pastoral ministry. And I said, we need to have a master's in servant leadership. 
And he says, what's that? I said, oh, it's a way in which you bring Sunday to Monday. How do you bring your faith to work each and every day? How do you work the levels of ideals in, in, our, in our corporate world, in a business understanding? And that, by that time, I'm quoting Abraham Heschel, and to Robert, who said, I mean, is not returned like the skyscrapers. Well, you think about it, what's a typical leader today in the political realm, in the economic realm, in a community realm, in a public servant? And, and so this is something I, I held on to and I really believed it was important. Well, then five years later, and this is when you were hired to start the, the Reinhardt Institute in, in Ethics and Leadership, and D.B. Reinhardt certainly was one of those kind of men who brought his faith to work each and every day. And all the good people that we've had an opportunity to work with do this on a regular basis. How about our good friend Dave Skolkin? Who doesn't make any distinction between Sunday and Monday and the way in which he lives his life and serves other people? Well, you were there, and then Sister Celeste Day was working with the leadership team of, of, of the FSPA, trying to understand how do you prepare the next generation of leaders when the sisters were not going to be there. And all of a sudden, it just kind of coalesced, and Sister Marla Lang was the president, and the, they decided to give the university $50,000 to begin a master's degree in servant leadership. And there's where we kind of kicked it off. And you were there in those early discussions. People want to go to pastoral ministry because it was familiar. And for so many years, people had no idea what we were talking about. So it was basically having to explain, well, this is the work that we're doing. This is what we see happening. And it's been a gradual evolution and organic process. And our process in, in, in working together coincided with what's happening with the Greenleaf Center and now conversations across the state of Wisconsin. Now it's kind of becoming an international summit will be held in Milwaukee next year. So it's this evolution, organic work of, of, of goodness and grace, I would say. Well, it's interesting that, that Greenleaf's writings have had such broad appeal. Um, one of the reasons, I think, is because it, it does have that, um, there's a religious element to it. Uh, Greenleaf took spirituality certainly quite seriously. Um, but um, there's also, a, I think, a fairly common mis perception that servant leadership is really a, a religious leadership or really most at home in religious organizations. And I, that doesn't seem to be true in the way that it gets practiced. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's a principled way in which to live one's life. I think it's a philosophy rather than a theory of leadership. Uh, a philosophy is a love of wisdom. What, what is right and good and just? How do you live your life? And I tell people in public presentations right now, don't listen to me. After my presentation, you might have enjoyed some of the things I had to say, but check it out with my wife. How am I doing at home? If I'm not a, if serving my family as a husband, father, now grandfather, if I'm not serving my friends and colleagues with humility and grace, well, don't expect me to do that when I'm in a leadership role. It has to be a seamless way in which one tries to live a, a congruent life. Now, do we fail? Of course we do. And I think that's one of the interesting things that Greenleaf talks about, that failure is an opportunity to grow in humility. And he was a very quiet and shy man, kind of an introvert, and didn't want his name attached to any of the work himself. He never pointed the work that, the, oh, look what Robert Greenleaf is doing. In fact, as you and I have talked about it, his, his first uh, attempt of, uh, of building out the ideas was called a Center of Applied Ethics. Yeah, well, and, and what I find so fascinating about what he was doing is that it was, it's, it's, um, it's really virtue ethics that Greenleaf seemed to be concerned about so that the, it's leadership based in character rather than, than so much, I think le probably leadership writing in Greenleaf's time, but, but certainly today it seems to be more based on strategies and tactics that have a kind of a short-term aim to them. Well, and that's why most of them fail. That's why most changes fail. I mean, you have to be at it. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And what's extraordinary about the man is that he had different phases in his life. Recently, you brought in Bruce Feiler, who talked about life transitions. And you look at Robert Greenlee's life, his whole narrative is the transitions that he went to. And he even was saw in his professional life, he's preparing himself for retirement so he could give something back to the country by investing himself in working in healthy institutions and the leaders of those institutions. It's just rather extraordinary how he took this time to reflect on the work that he was doing and the needs of the people, not only in his a, a circle of friends, but the needs of the people that were living within institutions in this country. Yeah. 
Um, would you talk about servant leadership today? Because we're, we're, we're talking about it being, in, in a way, it's 50 years old, um, the Greenlee's first publication. Um, and yet it seems to be gaining more interest. Is it in some ways more relevant today than it was in Greenleaf's time? I think so. I mean, think about it for just a moment in our lifetime. Have we ever heard the term essential worker applied to a custodian, a food service provider, a truck driver, a warehouse worker, Police officers are public servants, firefighters, EMTs, doctors, nurses, nurses, aides, serving on behalf of other people. Greater love than this has no one that lay down a life for a friend. What have we noticed across the world in the healthcare profession? People willing to go to work, exposing themselves to what could obviously become a deadly virus coming home and staying in their own garages, separated from their own children, only because they have this compelling understanding that they need to serve the needs of people. People that it's just rather extraordinary watching this kind of lived out. And then you begin to realize we see this happening each and every day. Clerks were always coming to work and making sure that we had our, the goods that we needed. How about farmers? What gives me great hope in the midst of the pandemic is our crops right now, that our farmers went to work in their barns and in the fields, producing crops, working with their animals, not even knowing what their prices are gonna be. But we have enough to eat because of the good people who serve us by their good, hard work. Also, as you've pointed out, the word servant leader doesn't have any movement really since when Greenleaf first announces it in 1970 when it was at AT&T and writes, uh, sends off his first essay. Um, 2004, it kind of has a little bit of a bleep, and this is where we're kind of getting a little bit of traction ourselves. And in 2008, with the, with the Great Recession, it kind of went off the charts because we clearly understood at that point, there's a difference between servant leaders and self-serving leaders. It was also about the time that Stephen Covey was coming you know, to, to grips with this and pointing this out, Kuzis and Posner. So all the people who have been long-term researchers talking about the development of leadership, we're always pointing back to Greenleaf's original ideas. And they found in Greenleaf a grounding. Peter Senge goes back and says, this is the work that has guided all, all of his thinking at MIT. Now we see Otto Scharmer, Parker Palmer, Anne McGee Cooper, Margaret Wheatley, all of them understanding this premise that the best leaders are those who choose to serve, to serve first. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, it's, it's remarkable, kind of, I would say, kind of the depth of scholarship we've seen around this notion of servant leadership with, with Greenlee's core ideas. And yet, there still doesn't seem to be consensus by scholars on what servant leadership is. And I, I, I think that probably goes back to what you said at the very beginning, that it's, um, servant leadership is really more of a philosophy than just a, uh, a theory. Well, and then the other part of it is we do not have a public language to talk about spirit. We're afraid to have these kind of conversations about that which is transcendent. And I think what's happening right now, I'm, I'm paying attention to the conversation the last uh, six months when we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis. Now people are beginning to recognize, listen, I need to pay attention mm -hmm. to the spirit. They need to pay attention to the spirit of the people in their organizations. How do you lift the spirits of other people? That's the word in inspiration, in spiritus, lift, lift the spirits of others. I have this quote from Greenleaf, and he said, in my view of the world, there are people whom I would call spirit carriers. Servants who nurture the human spirit are spirit carriers. They serve to connect those who do the work of the world, who are being prepared for that role, with vision from both past and contemporary prophets. Those servants find the resources and make the intensive effort to be an effective influence. They don't just make speeches or write books. They are spirit carriers. They connect the prophecy with the people so that it changes their lives. The spirit is power, but only when the spirit carrier, the servant is nurture of the human spirit, is a powerful and not a casual force. 
So what he's saying that intentionally and deliberately, you need to nurture the spirit. And what he, what he said is this, you cannot do the external work unless you've done the internal work. Unless you've kind of gone in and done the time for reflection and contemplation necessary to face your own failures, to face your own fears, to lead yourself out. It's extraordinary to me that I first learned about this after the death of John Lewis, but John Lewis, on the day that he watched, walked across the Pettus Bridge, had a backpack on at a time in which book backpacks were not popular. He had this small little backpack on his back, and he had a sandwich, he had an apple, and he had two books, thinking he was going to spend the night in jail, that he'd be arrested. Well, the two books that he had was The Restructuring of the American Democracy, and the second book was Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk who was searching at that point to how is it that he expresses his spiritual longings, and he writes it in his own narrative. This is what... what Lewis was involved in all of his life. How do you connect a life of service with a commitment to justice? And so in the last article that John Lewis writes to all of us, he said this, listen to your heart's calling and do what is necessary, even if it means getting into good trouble. Well, I think he was a spirit carrier and I see those people all around us all the time. This this language, you know, spirit character. There's there's such weight to it, and you you have so you have people like John Lewis, who's who who's facing something that he knows is going to be really difficult. It, it's one of these experiences that ends up propelling him into significant leadership later in his life, and yet at the same time, there's there's a great deal of criticism uh, about servant leadership as being soft. Um, which, which seems to me to be entirely a misconception, but I just wondered if you could address that, that criticism, which, which I hear all, all the time about, about servant leadership. As you know, and, and, and you're quite um, a, a gentle and understanding of this, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'm not the brightest crane in the box. I work real hard, but I wasn't endowed with natural intelligence. I spend a lot of time reading, a lot of time thinking, and more time uh, writing these days. But I know this to be true. If you tell the truth, people will trust you. If they trust you, they will respect you. And if they respect you, you have the opportunity to come together. But if you don't tell the truth, then people won't trust you. And if they don't trust you, they will not respect you. They do will not respect you. You'll never come together. Truth, soft stuff, having to tell people the truth. What is it like for an oncologist today in lacrosse looking at someone's cancer scans and having to come back? Does he tell the patient what the patient wants to hear? Truth, look at the number of employees, employers who have sit down and say, which of his employees could he furlough in order to save the business and yet understanding the, the health care and the needs and the children that, the, that these families depend upon for their jobs. Leaders who are concerned about the people in which they li live, that they serve with. How about army generals who make decisions about going to war, realizing that young people will lose their lives in service to our nation? This is difficult stuff if you take it seriously because you care about the people who are entrusted to your care. You and I have read papers and tears well up because you realize the heavy burdens that young people carry. People 21 and 22 who have had all kinds of loss and disappointment and are now wondering how can they carry these levels of burden. What's really extraordinary is the word leader comes from the Anglo-Saxon word leda, which means to step up, to step forward. Well, we've been seeing that happening. Ordinary people stepping forward, taking levels of responsibility in their neighborhoods and in their communities. How about our recent uh, primary elections? All those people wearing masks who sat at desks all day long so that the public could vote, serving us for a greater good, understanding that it was going to be hard work, labor intensive, if not dangerous to themselves. And so you begin to recognize it takes a level of moral courage in order to serve other people. It's not soft stuff at all. What's soft is telling lies. What's soft is telling people what they think they want to hear. What's soft is only talking to the people that agree with you. 
a servant leader brings people from different perspectives together for a greater good. Well, this is what real leadership is. And one of the things that I've learned from you that I repeat all the time and I give you credit, ideas unite, issues divide. Servant leaders have good ideas. That's where the nature of virtue comes from. The, the definition of a scholar at Oxford is knowing what's rotten, what's not. What's important, what's significant. There's a level of clarity that comes with servant leadership because of the time spent in reflection and contemplation. And what do we see happening? That those people have a clear mission, who are, are, are institutions that are committed to integrity and goodness, they survive. Institutions that take shortcuts, they're not there. For a number of years that we were, we were traveling together to the, the Servant Leadership Conference in Indianapolis when the Greenleaf Center for Servant Leadership was located there. And um, one of the really remarkable speakers uh, that we heard there was Parker Palmer talking about his, his friendship with Robert Greenleaf. And I'll never forget that him talking about Greenleaf's depression and how he struggled with depression throughout his life. And, and that, was a, that was a revelation to me because uh, um, Greenleaf's writings are so optimistic and, and they're so hopeful and forward-looking. Um, but then as you talk, it doesn't take, you don't have to go very far when you find in, in so many leaders, you find a, a, a history and a real struggle with, with sadness that in some ways, is the very thing that enables them to take on other people's pain. Well, that's, that's the meaning of compassion. Uh, I'll give you another couple of examples that we know very well. How about the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu? Yeah. These two world leaders who lived under political and religious oppression for most of their adult lives have suffered terribly, and particularly because they know the suffering of the people that they try to lead and serve. The Dalai Lama continually has to work with refugees from Tibet who had to leave their country. And this, now the second and third generations are in schools. Has to try to keep the culture alive. Desmond Tutu, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, the pain that he had to listen to. One of the things that's interesting about Tutu, he recognized that he could not cry during those hearings because if he did, the cameras would be on him rather than the atrocity. Never wanted to draw attention to himself. And both these gentlemen, Understand that the other side of that is joy, but it, that's a gift of spirit that you just have to be able to perse persevere through the darkness. One of the things that we tell our students that if you want to be a servant leader, you be, must be willing to bear the pain of others. Well, that's what integrity is. That's what takes moral courage. And that's what uh, we demand of our leaders. But you cannot grow by yourself. And I think that's why what's taking place, the work that you and I have tried to do, is try to be a member of a community that allows other people to unleash their gifts, to create an, uh, an emotional environment that's safe enough to talk about your struggles and accept your gifts at the same time. Therein lies the paradox of servant as leader, light and darkness, courage and fear. These are, these are paradoxical understandings that if you grapple with them and share them with others, you realize that you're not alone and then you're willing to take another step forward. Tom, you, you talk on this topic all the time. You're traveling quite a bit, um, you know, in addition to the classes you're teaching um, and you're, you're speaking to schools and businesses and hospitals. Um, what, do you, what, is, what is the part of the message that people are resonating most fully with when, when you're speaking to these groups? Well, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of things. And this is what Bruce Feiler um, has learned as that people are going through transitions and we're going through a transition right now. What do you remember are the stories? And what I do is I just lift up the stories of good people. There, there's this understanding that when good people come together, good things begin to happen. I, I think about yourself and Trout Unlimited, good people coming together from different backgrounds, economic, political, um, cultural backgrounds, but because of your care for clean water and, and fish, well, our, our streams were improved. I look in terms of rotary lights, people come from different perspectives, backgrounds, and understandings of what happens. People are fed light in the midst of darkness, and people are given hope 
because of the excitement of the service of other people. And all of a sudden, you just kind of raise up these examples, and we have all kinds of things. Last week, you and I had the opportunity to tour the Holman Community Center. Now, we were there with them in our conversations, I don't know, five, seven years ago, and there was contention and division and wasn't much clarity, and you kind of wonder where it was going to go. And a good man like Dan McHugh had lived in a community all of his life said, we got to do this. Let's not give up. And what happens is that their friend and colleague, Dave Skogan, comes and gives them a marvelous uh, donation in the community rallies. And it wasn't it impressive what they built in that community for children and elders to come together, a school district and a community working together to take care of their most vulnerable students. And all of a sudden people want to hear what is possible. And you point to people who are doing good work. Also, what I, what I talk about is it's a nature of goodness. And, and I think Aristotle is one who understood this, is that when you're around good people, there's a sense of joy. Well, in the midst of sadness that people are experiencing, when they come to a presentation and something's joyful, it's uplifting. A sense of peace with the amount of anxiety that people are experiencing. Is there a greater gift that can give people than a sense of peace, a non-anxious presence? And finally, you can stay here. People want a sense of stability. Well, that's what happens in good organizations, good institutions, good workplaces. People are joyful. They enjoy with the people that they work with. They enjoy the work that they're doing. There's a sense of peace. There's not a lot of drama or needless energy spent on anxious moments. And finally, they want to stay. Here's a place I can put my 10 stakes down. I can grow and develop as a person and therefore grow and develop my community, my family, and those that I cherish and love. Tom, you were talking about the, you know, this, this joy that, that, that is expressed. And I know one of the classes you teach is on ritual and celebration. So the, the, we talk about the importance of coming together as a community, right, in, in any kind of organization. And, and, and it, when we celebrate with others, uh, we form relationships that kind of break down power distinctions. Um, and then also the uh, rituals. Could you tell a little bit about some of the rituals that people have developed over that class and ways they found of celebrating success? Well, it's just rather extraordinary. Here, I'll, I'll just point one out to you that's just rather amazing to me. Um, last week, Sister Mary Ann Guishwin, one of our good friends, celebrated her 80th birthday. Sister Mary Ann is on nine different boards in lacrosse. 80 years of age, and the way that she feels she can give back is by serving on boards. Well, a member of one of those boards has arranged for a drive-by birthday celebration for Sister Marianne this Friday. A ritual in order to show appreciation to someone who's been a humble servant. Isn't that rather, we have to find ways in which to celebrate each other. I think what's been very painful, and we can just look at it from the other side, the number of families that have lost family members right now and have not been able to celebrate the lives of the people that they've lost. There hasn't been an opportunity to come together with other people and share food and stories about somebody that they've loved for a lifetime. Well, this is what we find happening within our classes. People come together and they find ways in which to bring their families together. Um, one gentleman who recognizes the need for fathers to be blessed as they become fathers. In the moment of birth, a new child comes in, there's showers for the mother, there's ways in which women gather around young mothers and support them in the ritual of giving birth and raising children. But oftentimes the fathers feel left out. And so what he did is he created a ritual in which you have experienced fathers join with a young man who has just become a father. And for these experienced fathers to sit down and listen to his hopes and his dream for his child, as well as his fears moving forward. And for these older men to give him a word of wisdom and blessing. Rather interesting, in the Old Testament, the greatest gift a father could give his children was the father's blessing. And you see these kind of things repeated over and over again. Um, one of the things that we had is our, our friend Terry Erickson. He's really into sports. Anybody would look at, look at Terry and say, well, that's all he cares about. Not true. What Terry cares about more than anything else is his family. And as his family was growing, he had more grandchildren. 
um, coming to the house and 30 to 35 people on Thanksgiving Day. What Terry did is they turned off the television, no football. They had dinner together and his wife and himself had gotten out pictures of everybody in the family and they handed out the pictures and everybody got a picture and everyone was required to tell a story of how much they love that person in their family. Do you think those children will ever forget hearing their parents talk about their, their, their grandma or their brother or sister, uncle and aunt in terms of endearment? Recreating connection by retelling family stories, by doing it at a time of Thanksgiving, which we all need to be more grateful rather than watching the Dallas Cowboys one more time. And all of a sudden you begin to recognize that that which is sacred gets elevated and, res and, and respected. One of the people in our program that I'd like to lift up, and you and I were there, an amazing ritual in which Organic Valley celebrated the life and work of this beautiful woman who died of brain cancer. And what was really extraordinary in that moment is that she was in class and there was another woman in class whose husband was diagnosed with brain cancer. And this beautiful woman led a prayer service of healing for her classmate's husband because she also had a person in her organization that was going through the same kind of trials. And the whole class came together and laid hands on a woman whose husband is going through brain cancer, has a five-year-old in kindergarten. You can imagine how frightened she is. It's a Friday night in 500 on Murphy Center, and people are laying hands and lighting candles, and then we were led in song because our good friend was a song leader at her Lutheran church. It's extraordinary. The man had cancer, brain cancer surgery, and he's lived. Our good friend did not die. She died, was not healed. And you begin to recognize that our, our stories that we tell or the rituals that we practice, we become what we believe. And that's what Greenleaf understood in our organizations and our work, our lives of work. We become what we believe in. What really changes is not into the changing policy, it's changing the, what's the spirit of the people. And that's what John Lewis was always looking at. How do you change? the spirit of people's hearts. And he was always willing to offer forgiveness to those people who had abused him as a child and a civil rights um, worker. Extraordinary. And so those are the kinds of things, just some of the things I could go on all evening long, as you know, talking about how we act out, which is most significant in our lives. Well, yes, I do know that you could go on and on. And, and, and we often, often do in our conversations, but I that that, it, it just reminds me that, you know, when we sign up for leadership in whatever sphere of life, um, we have to be ready to bring uh, whatever we have, whatever resources we have. And, and, um, and these are all the resources from our life, all the things that we know about what makes our own lives meaningful, um, what, what elicits uh, depth, both joy and sorrow in our most important relationships. And, and we end up bringing those to the table. Well, I, I think that's what we call the authentic self. This is who I am. I can be no other. I think Martin Luther taught us that. But uh, what is it to, to be yourself? And are we looking for leaders that we can trust? People who are as honest as, as they can be about themselves. I remember this wonderful line. Uh, somebody came up to Lincoln and said, uh, are you two-faced? And he said, ma'am, if I was two-faced, you think I'd be wearing this one? <laughs> no, he was able to poke fun at poke fun at himself. That's a level of sense of humility. And one of the things that Parker Palmer talked about is that Robert Greenleaf kind of had a quiet smile. He kind of had a, had, a, had a Quaker demeanor, if you will. But out of that Quaker demeanor of, of joy and peace and goodness radiates these ideas that he was to be committed to a greater good. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got a few questions that are coming from the Facebook page. So let me ask you, this, this one comes from Laura Lee. In the book, Servant as Leader, Greenleaf mentions the theory of prophecy and how servant leaders should embrace this theory. Could you explain how this theater, how this theory relates to today's ethics? 
Yes, um, a, a prophet doesn't predict the future. A prophet um, pays attention to the signs of the times. The prophet reads the signs of the times. What's taking place around us that we need to be paying attention to because if we do not change our behavior or change the way in which we're, we're moving, we're, we're going to find ourselves uh, in perilous situations. Let me give you an example. We've been spending a great deal about on COVID, and it's absolutely true. The number of people that have died in this country, the sadness, the grief that permeates, it's going to affect generations of people. We're going to have to find ways to have a national day of mourning or grief for what's taken, taken place. But in the meantime, in the last five months, have been the five hottest months on record. What we recognize is that as we're going through the virus right now, what's taking place in the natural world needs to be paid attention to as well. So all of a sudden, we recognize that what's taking place in terms of the signs of the times. One of the things that we're paying attention to red signs of times right now, parenting is a full-time job. And all of a sudden, the number of people that are at home trying to teach their children while doing their work, we're putting an enormous amount of pressure on them. How is it that we rebuild our families and our communities to support young parents? These are the signs of the times. And that's why Greenleaf talked about, you have to pay attention to people's legitimate needs and then find ways in which to serve them. Question. Uh, that comes from the Facebook page from Michelle. In some ways, in the last month, people have come together in tremendous and inspiring ways. In other ways, however, divisiveness has been at an all-time high, whether it's race, politics, or even masks. How can we use servant leadership to bridge the divides that we're experiencing today? Servant leadership gives us the moral courage to stand right in the midst. Or as Parker Palmer say, stand in the gaps. When you're in a moment of crisis or what we see happening right now, is it's, it's easy to move to the extremes. And so there's an extreme level in terms of optimism or the extreme level in terms of, of, pens, of what we call a corrosive cynicism. I kind of love, love that term because it, it is, it, it talks about how divisive that can be. But where does a servant leader stand? Right in the middle. And that's what's really amazing, Rick, about when I read your, the things that you've written over the years and your last article last time about Colonel Kite, and you begin to recognize those, those conversations about how we talked about the, the, the unlived lives of our parents and grandparents. And here, you, what, did your, what did your grandfather do all those years back in North Dakota? Took the middle way. Didn't go to one extreme or the other, but took the middle way. What is it that we can find ourselves in common? Be in common with each other. We believe in the same God. Being but we believe in each other. We have a family life. We have, a, we, have, we have to care about the land and the water because without land and water, we cannot survive. So what does servant leadership do? It gives us the strength to stand in the gap. Not an either or world, but a both and. To live with the complexity and the ambiguity. And most importantly, to realize that we're not alone. Isn't extraordinary in terms of the research that, that you've done over the last 20 years. I would say the most significant thing that you've helped us uncover is the importance of living in community. That you cannot practice servant leadership on your own. This is not a charismatic approach to leadership. This is not a personality-based leadership. You need a supportive community. And when we have the supportive community, we can stand in that gap together. Well, in some ways, it's been, for me, over the past 20 years, I keep finding out over and over again that my, my real understanding of leadership um, comes through the participation I've had with, with various groups, say, serving on boards or being a volunteer with groups or, or even my own work experience or experience in family, all those kinds of different groups and, and having different roles. And then I can take some of the theories and the things I'm reading and I I get some insight from them, but the real, I would say the spur, the motivation to understanding anything has to come out of your lived experience. And, and that lived experience always gets expanded in community. When you're by yourself, you just keep retreading the same waters. Now, what Greenleaf said is that everything he wrote about was bio, biographical. It, it came out of his own personal narrative. Well, I think about you and think about your mother working as a nurse and then teaching nursing, bringing people together, and people in the community recognize that. And even in retirement, I would imagine people are asking when they got an ache and pain, well, could you tell me, what, what should I do? It was a community that su surrounds you. Well, George Greenleaf, Robert's father, 
was very much involved in their community. And there was a, a flood that was threatening, ter uh, threatening Terre Haute, Indiana. And his father organized the neighbors to get all our things out of the house, up onto safer ground. So the flood came through, their houses got wet, but then they moved everything back in and they didn't lose all their possessions. And the neighborhood came together. And Greenleaf always thought this, that if an individual could organize a neighborhood, why is it that institutions could not organize a community? Well, that's, so here's the other thing. I would, we have one more question on Facebook, then I'll, maybe I'll come back to that. That's this idea of institutions, Greenleaf's kind of confidence in institutions. Um, but here, here's first a question from Terry. How will this pandemic and the social justice issues that are at an all-time high influence the concept of servant leadership principles in the future? Um, I think servant leadership is at least 3,000 years old. Um, this is an old idea, and it's difficult to practice. The people who have developed habits and discipline during this time will continue to carry this forward. For some people, they're kind of doing everything they can to avoid the pain and the struggle, but it's not possible. So you have to develop, in, I would say, spiritual disciplines in order to move oneself through. We've had to say no to certain things. We, we, everything is not available to us on demand. We've, we've had to live with a bit of scarcity. We've had to kind of get to know our neighbors and what's happening right now in what uh, has been called the Great Reckoning. We have to get to know people that we haven't met before. Well, those are gonna be disciplines. Now, do we, re, do we go back to where we are comfortable or do we continue to move into the, that place where we find ourselves uncomfortable, but growing? And that will be our challenge moving forward. Uh, how do we continue to take what we've learned and move forward rather than return to what people wanna call a new normal, which I do not think is possible. Yeah, I think what well, whatever happens, it's not going to be, it's not going to feel normal again. Um, <laughs> with past, um, you know, it's so interesting living right now with this the uh, a really a universal concern with social justice. It's it's really a powerful time that we're living in, and yet um, it's it's also difficult because. There's a real push towards uh, conformity. Um, I, and I've never felt so much pushed by both the left and the right for people giving assent to attitudes um, and a real impatience at asking questions or examining. And servant leadership seems to require that we, that we really develop an understanding of things. And so here's a question that, that's coming from, from Sandy. Is there a way to stand in the gap and fight against the social injustice? And, and, and I'm not sure, but I'm imagining this idea of standing in the gap is in a way like not just jumping to one side or another on something, but really trying to develop an understanding of something so that we bring people to, a, in, I guess, a more authentic position of justice. Well, um, we, we can look to the past, all kinds of people that have done this, but I, uh, here's another idea that you, that you introduced me to, or we both kind of discovered on our own. Um, but the importance that the twin sister of justice is reverence. If we want justice, we have to practice reverence for each other, for the environment, for our institutions. You cannot be constantly in the process of deconstruction. What is it that moves forward is justice and reverence together. How do we teach reverence? Well, it's our rituals. The ways in which we come together and practice that which is sacred in our midst. So you begin to recognize why is it that schools, teachers got in their cars and drove through town acknowledging their students or we had drive-by graduations or people um, having small weddings out in the field, but they still wanted to gather with the people that they love and they have our level of ritual to say, we are in right relationship with each other. What are the healing rituals that we can participate in or create in our own communities? 
coming together peacefully with a deep sense in terms of reverence. Isn't it extraordinary that John Lewis stood in the midst of all of this, not blaming, but with level in terms of reference. President Bush got up and said, I disagree with John on a great number of issues, but that's a healthy democracy. But what do they have for each other? A sense of reverence and respect for the office and the person of each other. That's what allows us to move justice forward. And what happens right now, what's a great temptation? One, it's revenge, I'll get you back. Another is withdrawing, well, I don't have to, it's not my, it's not my world, not my worry, rather than standing right in the midst of the messiness. Max Dupree, and I love this quote said, servant leadership is a privilege of being involved in the messiest parts of other people's lives. Well, it's messy right now. Let's jump in and see what we can do together. Tom, I want to come back to the, the idea of institutions because I've, I've never in my lifetime seen so much cynicism towards institutions. Um, and yet Greenleaf had a real confidence in the power of institutions. Um, and, and, and maybe that went along with a skepticism of the ability of individual action, individuals to change things. I'm not sure, but could you, what was Greenleaf's conception of like, what is an institution and why did he express uh, so much faith in the, the transformative work of these kinds of groups? Well, institutions is what holds the common life together. So let's, let's think about this. Uh, the importance of our libraries where everyone is welcome. Uh, the importance of city hall where everyone is welcome and people are public servants and do the work of the public. Churches are institutions, not only of worship, but of comfort and direction and support. Schools are institutions. And this is why parents are struggling because we've all recognized whether you're doing homeschooling or not, we need institutions that support us in the important work of educating our children. The military is an institution that we rely on to protect us. And right now, going to our cities, if you will, the National Guard is an institution making sure that people are protected and safe in very difficult circumstances. Uh, in the Catholic social teaching, understanding, I love this term, institutions are the ways in which we lay hands on the world. So let's look in terms of the influence of the FSPA all these years. The group of women who arrived in La Crosse, Wisconsin in the mid-1860s, probably right at the end of the Civil War, came on a buckboard, come to a place that has, has sawdust piles, quite honestly, because of the river town and its logging. And what do they do? Well, they create a mother house. And from their mother house, they begin to prepare people to uh, teach. And then they were called to... Uh, help out the men working on the river boats because no one else would care for them and they learned to become nurses. And so where, where do teachers teach? Well, they teach in schools. And so the FSPA prepared people to be leaders in their schools and they had prepared people to be teachers in their schools, but they realized that they needed the arts. So they prepared people in the fine arts in order to bring that to the curriculum. And then they, they're, they're, they're nurses. Well, they began St. Francis Hospital in terms of caring for the sick. It's the ways in which you have an influence that you could never have alone. And this is the heart of a democracy. You must have healthy institutions. And so that's why the United States always runs into problems. There's a nation building, because how do you build nations in places where they haven't had institutions, but only tribes? Who wants to commit themselves to the common good? So institutions hold our life in common together. I'll give you an example of how things have come, how far they've come, and many people are listening will, will not even know this. In 1960, my father and two other Catholic gentlemen from Wisconsin Rapids came down to La Crosse to ask then Bishop Tracy if Catholics could join the YMCA in Port Edwards, Wisconsin. John Alexander, the founder of the paper mill in 
Port Edwards, was donating money to build a YMCA, but they wanted the whole community to come. But Catholics at that point, 1960, because it was called the Young Men's Christian Association. So my father had to come back and say how important it is for us to participate in this public institution. Well, this is what we're still fighting today, isn't it? Who gets to join and who, who doesn't get to join? Whether in terms of voting, riding on public buses, public transportation, who's welcome and who's not. And so the notion in terms of institutions that they hold us together, but you can't hold too tightly because you have to have a level of inclusivity because we're publicly held. So this is, this is always a tension between public and private, but what holds us together is our understanding that institutions are there to serve us. And what Greenleaf understood is that therefore institutions need healthy leaders. If you're gonna have a healthy institution, you need to have healthy leadership. I was on at uh, LHI for a, a wellness conference that they were having and I was in a booth between osteoporosis and uh, bone density. And everybody had to walk through and they had a little passport and you had to click it with a, with a little clicker that they gave you so that you could put your name into a hat and if you got pulled out, you went on a cruise ship, I believe. And this young man looked at me, he says, servant leadership, what's this servant leadership stuff? And I said, well, if we have healthy people, we have the possibility of have healthy leaders. If we have healthy leaders, we'll have healthy organizations and institutions and businesses. If we have healthy institutions, organizations, and businesses, we'll have a healthy community. If we have healthy communities, we'll have a healthy state. If we have healthy states, we'll have a healthy nation. I said, you got to be willing to go big or stay home. He looked at me and said, I think I'll stay home. <laughs> and I think this is what we are still struggling with today the level of indifference towards committing myself to institutional life and a common good. A lot of people just kind of staying home rather than saying, what is it that I could be doing at this point? And you don't have to do everything, but just choose something to commit yourself to each and every day. And this is what really was the fear of Greenleaf, that there are natural servants and leaders who refuse to serve and lead. And that's what we find in our classes, isn't it? People come not because they want to climb a corporate ladder, but because they felt called. How many times have people said in their class, I don't know exactly why I'm here, but I kind of felt this urge. It's a calling to serve and then to lead. In serving, we lead. In leading, we serve. That's great, Tom. I think, I think we'll probably end it right there. We're, up, we're out of time, but I think that's a real good note to end it on and um i think that's this idea of being called to called to serve and and thereby to lead is is really powerful and um and we certainly have seen so many examples of people that embody that um, over the years so thank you tom i'm gonna end our program here tonight